And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, despite being sons of the Reformation, being, being chur- a church that did properly go through the Reformation, we Anglicans have always had a very high regard for the church fathers, for that received tradition of the first few centuries of the church. Um, and some of our guys were amazing Patricia scholars, by the way. Uh, Canon Ashley Knoll gave a, gave a talk through Neshota House recently. I don't know if you saw that, John. If you didn't, you should watch that. <laughs> Canon Ashley Knoll is like the, one of the premier scholars on Archbishop Cranmer, um, who wrote our, who kind of was the architect behind our prayer book, and um, t- doing a talk about some of the discoveries that they just recently made for Cranmer's patristic studies, um, some 1,600 pages of notes, not, the pa- not his actual work, but the notes leading to his work um, that they found in Paris uh, under kind of a generic manuscript name uh, for, for Cranmer's patristic scholarship. So that, that was who we are. And for me as a priest, I'm often asked by folks for advice and where to get started in reading the Church Fathers. Some of you have, have come up to me doing that over the years. And usually I will point folks to the same place that I started, which was a 40-day reading plan of the Church Fathers designed to be a Lenten devotional. So even though I had taken, before I ever saw this devotion, I had taken two semesters of church history and historic theology where we covered that period of time, it really wasn't until I got a hold of that little book, um, really an e-book, that I interacted with the actual texts of the fathers, those primary sources or at least translations of them, the actual writings of the fathers themselves. On the second and third days of this plan, uh, we read the Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus, which is a second century work of apologetics, where we have this anonymous Christian uh, disciple. That's what, that's what Mathetes means. It just means disciple. An anonymous disciple makes a case for his faith to a pagan magistrate named Diognetus. And there's a particular passage there that is always Uh, I've always found to be very inspirational. The author describes in this passage the way that Christians aren't a separate people group. They don't kind of have their own little nations, their own little cities or anything like that, but rather are ideal citizens from among any of the empire's nations. This is what he writes. He says, Inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities... According as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they, that is the Christians, display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners." Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. That was a big thing in the ancient world. Um, Unwanted children, especially daughters, were just left out to die um, in in the ancient world. Um, Christians uh, would would adopt those those daughters left to die. So the church in those first couple centuries, um, the, the the female population grew ex- exponentially because these little girls are being raised as Christians. And in the pagan world, there weren't enough daughters because they were killing their daughters. 
And so these young men would convert to Christianity so they'd have somebody to marry. <laughs> and that's how the church grew in the first two or three centuries. <laughs> okay, continuing on. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. And then he continues on and on throughout the rest of the chapter to describe the Christians as those people who show themselves set apart from the rest of the world by righteous and moral conduct. As we continue in our Trinity Tide sermon series through St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, we see that the Bible expects us to live differently from the rest of the world, just like we see lived out by these folks in the epistle of Diognetus. So please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17. <clears throat> Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So this passage sets up a contrast between the life to which Christians have been called and the life of the rest of the world. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, a few weeks ago, if you remember, we discussed that one new man made of Jews and Gentiles brought together to be built into a temple for the Spirit of God. <clears throat> well, in today's passage, St. Paul is using the word Gentiles a little bit differently. Back in chapter 2, it was Gentile versus Jew, right? It was, it was the, the, the Jews and then everybody else, everybody else being Gentiles. But here, here he's referring to Gentiles as those who are pagans, those who don't yet know the true God, those who have either not heard or have not accepted the gospel. Even though the Ephesians had come out of pagan Gentile culture, they were not supposed to live in the same way as their, as their Gentile neighbors. This didn't mean that they were supposed to convert and become Jews. That was kind of part of what we talked about in Ephesians chapter 2. Rather, they were to live as Gentiles who had been called out of their former lives by the grace of God. St. Paul describes the pagan Gentile world, um, the pagan Gentile way, as walking in the futility of their minds. So rather than living according to God's word, they walk according to whatever seems right to them. In the book of Judges, we see some of the darkest stories in the Old Testament these, these just really nasty stories of the people's disobedience. And we have this constant refrain. Most every story in Judges begins this way. There was no king in Israel. And the very last verse of Judges says, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's what it's like to walk in the futility of the mind. And not just in Judges, but here in Ephesians, we see the fruit darkness of understanding, alienation from the life of God, ignorance of the things that truly matter, and hardness of heart. When we walk according to our own understanding, according to whatever is right in our own eyes, we become, as St. Paul said in this passage, callous, 
insensitive to anything but our own wants. We're given up to sensuality, driven by our base passions, even to the point where we become greedy for impurity. So what St. Paul describes here is an excellent picture of pagan culture in his day. We talked already, I mentioned the uh, practice of exposing their babies in, in his day. But there was a lot of other stuff too. It was just, it's just a really dark picture of pagan culture in his day. But if we can be honest, it's, it describes a lot of what, what our general culture today looks like in, in America today as well. Especially that bit about everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. And what does that lead to? It leads to a culture that's obsessed with sex, driven by entertainment, distracted to futility, and so very far from peace. But we Christians are called to a higher standard. So let's look at verse 20. St. Paul writes, But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So unlike Israel in the time of the judges, we do have a king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to follow his ways, those truths that we find in Holy Scripture. We are called to put off our old self, that old pagan lifestyle, the lies of the world with their corrupt desires. And rather, we are called to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. I find that phrase, the spirit of our minds, to be a very interesting turn of phrase. St. Jerome says this regarding that phrase. He says, we are not... He says, we are not being renewed in our thinking process apart from the renewal of our spirits, nor are we renewed in our spirits without thinking. We are being jointly renewed in the spirit of our mind. Hence, we sing psalms in the spirit, so we also sing them in our thoughts. As we pray in the spirit, so we also pray in our thoughts. The renewal of the spirit of our mind means that when the thought is clear and pure, then the spirit is rightly joined to it. They are so coupled as if by cohesive glue that we no longer speak simply of the spirit, but of the spirit of our minds. As the spirit is renewed, so is the mind. Beautiful. Notice, <coughs> notice what St. Paul said in verse 21. He said, you have, assuming you have heard about Christ and were taught in him. The exhortation to live righteously is based on an assumption, the assumption that you have been called to be a follower of Jesus, just like we read in our epistle reading today from the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. So our, our epistle reading was what we read, what we studied last week in Ephesians 4. St. Paul said in our epistle reading, he said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Since you have been baptized into Christ, joined to him by faith, you are then a new creation and therefore called to live as such. That's what we talked about last week. Well, our collect for the day fleshes this idea out a little bit. This is probably, in, if not my favorite collect, it's in the top five for me. We prayed that the Lord's grace would always prevent and follow us 
and make us continually to be given to all good works. And so we have to issue this reminder every year that in Tudor English, in the English of the prayer book, the King James Bible, that period of time, the word prevent means to go before. It doesn't mean that it limits us or it sets up a barrier. It means to go before. And we actually see this echoed in, in, um, in uh, our, our article on good works, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But so really what, what this collect is praying is that we are praying that God's grace would go before us and follow us. We're praying that God's grace would, would be the trailblazer and the rear guard of our Christian walk. We're praying that God's grace would surround us because only then can we be, as our colleague says, given to all good works. Without God's grace, without faith as their basis, as our article says, without God's grace preventing us, going before us, we cannot truly do good works. Because as Article 12 says, that same article, without faith in Christ, the works that seem to be good on the outside are liable to God's judgment. Why? Because deep down, they are mixed. They are impure. They don't live up to that perfection of God. I might never kill my brother, but deep down, I get really mad at him and angry without cause. Right? And the Lord says, you murdered him in your heart. So me treating my brother kindly may be born out of just, I don't want to get in trouble. You know, that's, that's, not, that's not good works the way the Lord is pleased, right? Okay. So because, the, yeah, those good works don't live up to the, protect, the, to the perfection that God requires. Well, in verse 24, our Ephesian passage, we're urged to put on that new self that's created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. When we have God's grace, that new self has been created after the likeness of God the Son. We've been created in the image of Christ when we were united to him by faith and baptism. When the Spirit regenerated you and he gave you new life, then you were made into the likeness of God the Son, the likeness of Jesus, following the commands of God the Father, right? So this idea of righteousness here is walking in the right way, that way that we know from Scripture. Everything we must believe and practice for faith and morals is to be found in Holy Scripture. And only Scripture can define sin for us. Only Scripture can bind the conscience. That's why we don't walk according to our ways. Because our ways aren't trustworthy. Scripture is. And then it talks about living in holiness. That means set apart. So that is both a description of who we are in Christ. We have been set apart. We've been called out of the world. That's what, that's what the word for church in Greek means. Ekklesia, those who were called out. And it's also, though, something that we are trying to live up to. It's a calling to which we aspire. We have been called to be separate. Not that we're called completely out of being in the world. We're not called to be of the world, and so we aspire to live in the way which we were called. Well, the rest of the chapter here in chapter 4 describes some of what this righteousness and holiness looks like. And so we're going to take these um, one at a time, verse by verse, because St. Paul basically gives us a list of what this looks like for the rest of our time. So, verse 25. 
St. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So last week we spoke about speaking the truth in love, and this verse today gives us the reasoning for why we speak the truth in love. It's because we are members of one another. The truth is necessary for unity. We are to speak the truth because it is the best thing for our neighbor, whom we are to love as ourselves, right? Because we are one body in Christ. Okay, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So what St. Paul says something very interesting here. Anger is not inherently a sin, but as we all know, it's all too easy for our anger to be sinful, right? Godly anger is similar to God's self-description as jealous. It's not based on capriciousness. It's not based on selfishness, but rather it's based on love of what's right and love of the other person. It has to be really based on both of those things for it to be godly. That's why St. Paul tells us not to let the sun go down on our anger. Because godly anger seeks resolution and restoration rather than being mad for the sake of being mad. Rather than being mad for the sake of being right in our own eyes. Rather than letting it stew. When we let our anger fester, we give opportunity for the devil to tear apart our relationships. Those of y'all that have been married a long time, how often does something that you didn't resolve several years back come back again, right? Remember when you did, wait a minute, that was five years ago. What do you mean remember when I did? (laughs) Happens all the time, and that's not the way it's supposed to happen. Okay, and remember again, verse 25, we are members of one another. Verse 28, let's continue on. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So our work... Our vocation is ultimately for the benefit of our neighbor. Our good works are the same way. Anything good that we do is ultimately for our neighbor's benefit. God doesn't need our good works, right? But your neighbor does. And so what St. Paul is saying here is that honest work is not selfish work, with the thief being that ultimate selfish work, right? The thief stealing selfishly being that ultimate uh, uh, selfish work. Rather, Honest work so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And that's probably the most convicting of these, this list for me, uh, because foolish idle talk comes very easily. <laughs> and sometimes we dress up that ungodly talk, such as gossip. We dress it up with a religious veneer. I'm not here to gossip. I'm just sharing a concern. I just have a prayer request. St. Paul here gives us a good rubric for what godly talk really looks like. First of all, it builds up everyone involved. Second, it is appropriate for the occasion. And third, it gives grace to those who hear. In particular, gossip can be absolute poison in the church. But on the other hand, on the other hand, when our words are those that give grace to those who hear, the Holy Spirit uses them to help Christians grow in Christ and even to help bring people that don't know Christ to him. Okay, verse 30. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The idea of grieving the Holy Spirit really sums up sin in general. There's no such thing as just a little sin. In fact, our sins are the most dangerous when we think that they're no big deal. When we think it doesn't really matter is when it matters the most, spiritually speaking. Yes, we go to God's throne of grace with boldness. We're not afraid to go to God with our sins. But that doesn't take away the seriousness of it. Indeed, our sins are so serious that Jesus died for them. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit will prompt your conscience to resist the temptation to sin. That's why, it's, that's why when we do sin, we are grieving the Holy Spirit, is because we're kind of ignoring what he's doing in us, right? We're pushing him off to the side. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit in our baptism, and that means that we can, as the baptismal liturgy says, fight manfully under Christ's banner against sin, the flesh, and the devil. And here's the grace of it all. We're not fighting alone. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. He's there with us, fighting that battle as well. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And this really sums up the way that we should treat each other, this last, these last two verses of the chapter. We're supposed to put away bitterness, wrath, ungodly anger, and all the rest of that. And instead, we are to treat each other with kindness, forgiveness, and tenderheartedness. Why? Well, that last phrase says, it's because God forgave us. We should treat each other in the same way that God treats us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And ultimately, this paying forward of God's grace, the grace that he's given us, that's what separates the Christian calling from, the walk, from walking according to the Gentiles. The world is a dog-eat-dog place. The world offers no mercy to those that fall. And when it does offer mercy, it's a fake mercy because it's a mercy that says, that's okay, your fall wasn't really a fall. That's not really a sin. Do what you want. God says, no, let's deal with that problem and so that we can raise you up. God's property is always to show mercy. And so may we do the same here at All Saints in our, our whole lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Do good, and the sheep forget not, with such sacrifices God is pleased. Mm-hmm.